Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hey listeners, I have some exciting news. Behind the Knife will hit 1 million downloads this month. Thank you for your support over the past two years. It has been a fun ride. Take your enthusiasm to the next level with limited edition Behind the Knife t-shirts. With only two weeks left for this campaign, don't miss out. Click on the link in the show description and buy one now. All right, welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are very pleased to have the Skeptical Scalpel, who can be found at Twitter at Skeptic Scalpel. Uh, Welcome very much to Behind the Knife. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I enjoy your work. So one of the unique aspects about you is that nobody really knows exactly who you are, and I'm assuming that you want to keep it that way despite our best kind of uh, attempts during this podcast to try to trip you up. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. You assume correctly. <laughs> so we know that you're formerly in the Navy, you're former chairman of surgery, former residency uh, program director, greater than 40 years as a surgeon. You've done 36,500 tweets. You have 17,600 followers on Twitter, and you've had maybe close to 3 million blog views, and yet yeah, nobody knows over, exactly who you are. It went over 3 million uh, about uh, last week. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, it's been fun, and uh, the an- anonymity part is um, I was going to just come out, so to speak, but I, it's been fun to be sort of unknown and mysterious, so I'm going to try to keep it that way for a little while longer. started when I was still practicing. I had uh, given up residency uh, training and uh, chairman of sh- surgery jobs because I just couldn't deal with it anymore, frankly, and I got a job as a surgical hospitalist, and I was working only 10 days a month uh, 10 full days with call and everything. And, and I had a lot of free time. So I, I decided I wanted to be a writer and I got in touch with somebody who hooked me up with an editor on a medical news site. And he told me that I could do it, but he needed to see what I could write. And he said, why don't you start a blog and, and go on Twitter to promote your blog. And if you can write, I'll hire you. And that actually did take place after about a year of blogging. He hired me and I did some medical reporting for three or four years. And the blog just started with, um, I was going to say it started with my family, but I don't even think they were reading it at the time that they may have clicked in, but (laughs) I don't think they read the whole thing, but um, it just got bigger and bigger. And uh, I got more interested in Twitter and it's uh, evolved into what is going on right now. So uh, that's how I got going. Um, it was no, uh, I didn't know where it was going to take me. I didn't even know if I would be able to do it, but I realized I had a lot of things to say that I couldn't have said when I was, uh, sort of a mainstream chairman and slash program director, because you couldn't say anything that would offend anyone. People in power may not like it and you had residents to worry about and you didn't want to jeopardize your program. So I used to do my best to, change things, but not make too much noise. And so once you get out of that business and then you also become anonymous, you have a little bit more freedom to speak your mind. And that's basically what I've been doing for the last seven and almost seven and a half years. I started in July of 2010. Wow. With blogging and tweeting. (laughs) What blog uh, do you remember as being one of the most poignant that really kind of put your blog on the map? Well, I think the first one was a post about appendicitis and CT scans. I had actually written a paper back about 2003 or four um, that said CT scans weren't accurate because in, in, at that time they weren't uh, in the diagnosis of appendicitis. But I, uh, when I got to doing my hospitalist job, I was taking out a lot of appendixes and I realized that CT scan was incredibly accurate. Uh, and... I wrote a post about it, and I, really, I basically was saying, don't sweat the radiation. And that I've written several more posts about that at the, as um, time goes on. But um, it has had about 88,000 uh, page views, and um, I've written several other posts about the, the radiation I got. Uh, I don't know if you guys follow Rograd on Twitter, 
uh, he's a, a University of Pennsylvania radiologist, and he and I wrote a post together about how the radiation fear of doing diagnostic tests is overrated, especially with the CT scans for appendicitis. So there was that one. And then I, the one that actually really got me going was I wrote a post that is obviously very <laughs> simplistic, but true, which is that st- statistical significance is not the same as clinical significance. And I illustrated that with a paper that I critiqued. And somebody picked that up who had like 100,000 followers. And uh, that really got me on the map. I got a lot of followers after that on the blog and on Twitter. And that one, that one really got me going. But I, I want to talk about one other one that was recent, which actually the last post I wrote, which was um, about uh, medical school graduates who can't find jobs. And there are lots of them. And it is, uh, it's had almost uh, 5,000 page views in around uh, eight or nine days, which is a lot for a, you know, a post that's only been out for a week or so. And it's, uh, there are stories people are writing in with comments and telling us stories about um, how they're suffering from not being able to get a medical, you know, a, a, a residency and a, a job as a physician. And it's really sad. And I've been writing for three years or so now about trying to warn people about going to Caribbean schools and the chances of matching. And, you know, the, the, the match for foreign graduates now is, or international medical graduates is what the correct terminology is. Only about 50% of those who apply are matching. And that's not a good odds, especially if you're uh, spending a lot of money going to medical school. So that's one I'm really proud of because I think it's highlighting a problem. And I hope I can uh, make a difference as far as having people think about this a little bit more. Because I think that what people are thinking is I'm not going to be the one who doesn't get one. But guess what? Half of the people who graduate are not getting a residency. And what are you going to do with your medical degree? So uh, and and there are many tales of, of hardship that have followed that. So uh, some of it is funny, and I try to be humorous if I can. But this is serious business, and I'm I'm really hoping that people start to wake up. And I think it should, you know, all these medical schools are opening up, and the, there are lots of offshore schools now, and you can't get good data on them and everything. And it's just it's really sad. I I I've, it's really opened my eyes to look into this. And I think everyone should be paying attention to it and uh, make sure that people at least know what they're getting into. It's all you can do, I guess, really. Definitely. It is quite scary. Uh, one question I had for you is if you could, if you had to choose one uh, Twitter feed and one uh, medical related blog that you, you could only have one and you're recommending it to maybe surgical residents, uh, which, what would those be? Wow, the Twitter feed one is probably easier. Um, uh, it's really not that easy, actually. Uh, I I like uh, I do I do follow some journalists, uh, and I follow some surgeons. I guess um, I, I like people who just don't tweet, uh, you know, fifty times a day to clutter up your feed with with a lot of nonsense. So I like people <laughs> who only have a few things to say, and they're usually important. I guess I would say, um, honestly, I don't follow Atul Gawande, and I probably should. I just have a very small list of people that I follow, and I, I've been thinking about following him because he really has a lot of good things to say. And I, I think now that you've asked me this question, I probably am going to just do that uh, because what am I waiting for? Uh, but I think he's probably, as far as a surgeon goes, and he's very, uh, not only just surgery, but of course, as you know, he's been a very good author. And... He is uh, socially aware, and he comments on things and tells it like it is. And probably, I think, if there was only one Twitter follower that's what, uh, that you wanted to have or somebody to follow on Twitter, he's probably the surgeon that I would recommend, uh, although that's not to say there aren't some very good surgeons uh, worth following. Uh, as far as a blog, um, I'm going to be really honest with you. I don't read too many other blogs. I know that sounds crazy, but um, I just... I, I don't know. I just don't know. I, I, I'm very picky about what I read. And I, I just, there used to be some, some people who blog, who don't blog anymore, who are really good. There was a guy called Bongi. It was, he was at Bongi numeral one from Africa. And he would tell some stories about surgery there. And his blogs are still excellent to read, but he, he's kind of gone off the radar. 
I think he ran out of ideas. And by the way, that is a problem after seven years. I'm beginning to, you know, it's getting a little repetitious and I'm, I've, I've sort of slowed down my output because I, I don't want to just write something just because it's Tuesday, you know, I'd rather <laughs> say something that's important. Um, so there's that. And, and a, there's a few other ones that have gone kind of silent. And I think possibly because uh, they were people in practice and they were using their real names and you tend to write about patients, which is uh, when you're in practice and somebody knows who your real name is, it's probably not a good idea to do that. And as residents, you should know that uh, it's very difficult to keep patient anonymity if you start talking about cases and people can find out who you're talking about pretty easily, especially if you're in a small place where uh, the public may know the person who's been uh, being talked about on the blog. So um, I, I'm, I'm sorry I don't have a definitive answer for you on that one, but I, I think uh, I, all I can say is uh, if you're going to blog, and I don't think it's a bad idea to blog if you have something to say, but you got to be careful if you're going to take, talk about patients because that you can uh, get into a lot of HIPAA trouble uh, with that and or lose your job, which isn't neither one of those things is good. So I'd, I'd say I'd sort of, I'm sort of like a politician. I didn't answer the question. You know, I just <laughs> turned the question around to an answer I actually did know the answer to. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's basically it for that question. I'm, I don't have anything else to really say about that. Great. Well, uh, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the podcast is uh, to help dispel some common surgical myths. And we put this out to the Twitter community, and boy, we got a lot of responses, almost 30 uh, different uh, myths, uh, surgical myths. Unfortunately, we had to narrow it down for today to just a few, um, but if this is enjoyable, um, we'd love to have you back and um, go through some more. Um, some of the few that we decided to discuss today are uh, bouffant hats versus skull caps in the operating room, which is very uh, controversial, uh, cephalosporins for patients with penicillin allergies, and then do all fevers need a fever workup in Tylenol is one of the ones, and then, uh, and then of course, bowel sounds and determining uh, return of bowel function. So we're going to run through some of these. Some of them are uh, quicker than others. And at the end of each one, Dr. Scalpel, we're going to ask you if the myth is busted or not. Um, so the Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> so the first one is uh, bouffant hat. Uh, and this has uh, been a very hot uh, issue recently um, where one of the perioperative uh, nursing associations came out and said that they... Um, the skull caps are have a higher risk of infection rate due to hair and ears being uh, visible. Um, and the American College of Surgeons has come out um, after a few studies has, have come out and said this is likely not true. Um, Dr. Seal, before we dive into this currently, I know Dr. Rosen is one of the main articles we're going to discuss. He's at the Cleveland Clinic. What is the current policy at the Cleveland Clinic on bouffant hats? Well, in general, uh, the, you can wear bouffant hats. That's not a problem, but they have to be laundered and also it's pretty standard that you can't wear them outside of the operating room. As soon as you leave there, you got to take them off. Great. Well, um, we're going to go through uh, two of and, and Dr. Uh, Scalpel, just on your initial impressions before going through the data, what is your thoughts on uh, skull caps versus bouffant hats in the operating room? Well, I've written four blog posts about it, so I guess I have an opinion. Um, I have, even before the current research came out, I was uh, – challenging the AORN to uh, document some evidence to back up their position because basically their position about Buffon caps is that it's better for the patient because there'll be less infection, but there's no data whatsoever, at least there wasn't when they first made the policy about whether that's true. It's a difficult subject to study. I, I understand that. And the recent uh, paper from the neurosurgery service in uh, Canada, I believe it was, that said there was no difference when they they had a before and after study where they like one day they, they just couldn't wear cloth or skull caps if you would call them paper or cloth versus bouffant uh, caps, and they wrote this paper that said there was no difference in wound infections in the year before and in the year after the bouffant caps came. Um, became mandatory. And they have subsequently followed this up with a, there's just something in the bulletin of the American College of Surgeons from uh, this on uh, this month, actually, 
that says that um, they also feel not only there was there no difference, but bouffant caps make it difficult for them to work because uh, they don't contain perspiration and they are easily removed. Like if you're taking a headlamp off, like if they're going to do a case and they need a headlamp, they don't wear it the whole time. And so the nurses put it on and adjust it for them. And then when they take it off, the cap comes off at the same time. And, you know, there are little things that people don't think about. It's not just infection. And also, of course, as you well know, if you've ever worn a Buffon camp cap, it's very uncomfortable. The elastic is annoying. And um, and if you look at the, one, of, one of the blog posts, I found a bunch of pictures online of nurses with their hair peeking out from underneath their own Buffon caps. It's a joke. Um, nobody really covers up all their hair. So I'm, I've been uh, on the skull cap or surgical cap, surgeon cap side of the fence since before even there was data. And uh, I don't know if you all saw this, but um, Jeff Matthews, who's the chairman of surgery at the University of Chicago, uh, tweeted uh, uh, a slide that someone who had taken, who, who has the uh, Twitter name of um, uh, University of Wisconsin burn doctor or UW burn doctor, and she took, uh, posted a slide that said that somebody had done some research and Buffon caps actually have more contamination on them than cloth uh, skull caps. And uh, unfortunately, I, I sent her a direct message, uh, or uh, actually it was a tweet, and I said, please tell me who wrote this paper and presented it because it's not a, it's not, you can't see it. It would just be an abstract because it was presented at the meeting. And unfortunately, uh, I didn't really think about doing that until yesterday. So she hasn't come back to me with the answer, but I was very interested in that, that paper. Um, so I, I would say to me, there's no evidence that proves that Buffon caps uh, lead to fewer infections. And uh, there's also no evidence that there's even a difference. In fact, the evidence says there's no difference in infections between the Buffon caps and the skull caps. To be honest, there are some issues of power uh, of the studies because, uh, you know, in neurosurgery, for example, you would need a lot of patients to show a difference because the wound infection rate in neurosurgery is low. So, you know, I don't know that that that, that paper proves that Buffon caps are no better, but it certainly doesn't show a difference. So that's about all you can say about it. The problem is that the regulators have seized on this and the AORN, as you, I think, noted, is not backing down on this. They're they're just—they're actually doubling down, uh, saying that surgeons are—you uh, know—that the, I think the college took the attack by saying it's a symbol of surgery and all that. You know, it, it, that's not really the message. The message should have been: there's no data to show there's a difference. Stop bothering us about this. End of story. But they didn't choose to go that way. So you can now pick at them and say nobody cares what the tradition of surgical caps is, because frankly, that's true. <laughs> And especially the public, they don't care. So, uh, but I'm I'm very strongly in favor of uh, rescinding all these prohibitions against uh, uh, surgical skull caps and forgetting about Buffon caps. I don't know. What do you guys do? What do they do at your hospital in Madigan? Uh, so at Madigan, uh, they do. Uh, they recently allowed the skull caps back, but at most hospitals that we work at in the Seattle area, they still require a Buffon hat to go over top of a skull cap, uh, is my, my experience. It defeats the purpose, obviously. You know, if you're going to wear the damn thing anyway, uh, what's the point of having a skull cap? I guess you could say that would at least soak up any perspiration if you're if you're operating and it's hot or whatever, but because uh, certainly a bouffant cap is useless if you're if you're sweating, no no question about that. So, so uh, it's nice to see though that somebody allowed the skull caps back. That's a good sign. You would think that perhaps that is uh, you know going to be uh, they may be ahead of their ahead of the curve on setting the trend to return to sanity about this. But let's see what happens. I guess over the years. So a couple of comments in response to your points, Dr. Scalpel. The first, I think, about that Twitter feed or the Twitter post that you had mentioned from UW Burndock. I believe that's actually the University of Washington's Dr. Nicole Gibran. Uh, she's one of the oh, preeminent Burndocks there. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's her name. Yes. Okay, good. And so you know her. Yes. And that was an excellent blog post or, or a Twitter post. And uh, I'm excited to see the results of that myself. 
Um, so that was interesting because it speaks to the bacterial load concept of the various uh, vehicles, whether it be a bouffant cap or a skull cap. Um, and I believe the initial studies brought forth by the Association of the Nurses uh, actually also dealt with bacterial load. But one of the posts that Kevin and I wanted to explore was a recent study by Dr. Rosen. And we thought this was a good study because instead of just looking at bacterial load, uh, this study tried to tie it to clinical outcomes that matter, such as the postoperative wound complication events. So this was a study that was just published in uh, Hernia in August 2017. Uh, and Dr. Rosen and colleagues uh, looked at a total of 68 surgeons um, spanning over 6,000 cases and looked at what types of uh, headwear each of these surgeons were wearing over the course of those 6,000 cases, conducted a retrospective multivariate logistic regression analysis and found that there was no association between the type of headwear and the actual post-operative wound complication events up to 30 days. Uh, we were wondering, Dr. Scalpel, what you thought about these findings. Well, I actually blogged about that study uh, back in May, and I uh, obviously agree with the conclusions. However, it really was a survey, mostly. Uh, it really wasn't a chart review or anything uh, on that level. Um, I I think it just adds more fuel to the fire as far as defending uh, skull caps versus bouffant caps. I think, though, unfortunately, the level of evidence is not the highest grade. It's not really level one evidence. But I think you if you if you want to have a discussion with your OR uh, nurse supervisor or whatever her title might be these days. Um, or his title, for that matter, uh, that certainly would help. You could show them this paper. And I, and I thought it was a, a good idea. Uh, it's kind of a small study, but um, when I blogged about it, I thought, I, I thought it had a sufficient power. It's just that I think to say that we asked a bunch of surgeons about their wound infections, and this is what they said, I, I don't know. I, I, I wish I could tell you, yes, that's it. It's definitive. We're done. Let's move on to the <laughs> next topic. But I, I don't think it settles the issue, and certainly if you're the AORN, you're going to uh, balk it, being told this is the right thing to do. But I, I agree that it's, a, it's an interesting paper, and, and I agree with you 100% that just uh, swabbing the hat is not the answer. I've written, I don't know, I seriously don't know, maybe more than 20 posts about these people who go around and swab cell phones and keyboards and doorknobs and whatnot. And we know that viruses can hard be harbored. there, certainly on doorknobs and noroviruses uh, notorious for that. But a lot of these things, you know, like everybody's cell phone is really dirty and there's no, where's the outbreak of, you know, the epidemic of disease. I don't see it. And it's true of just about every inanimate object that you can mention, including ties and things like that, that people are going crazy about. And, you know, the study, there's a study on ties. They dipped a tie in bacteria and then they said, look how much bacteria there is on this tie later. Well, you're going to dip your tie in bacteria, certainly, but that's not something we generally do when we're making rounds is dip our tie in the bacteria. And again, where's the, where's the evidence that these things are truly causing infections? Because just having bacteria on your clothes and white coats is the same thing is, is not, I don't know if that's such a big deal. I, you know, I think whatever you wear, you're going to get bacteria if you're in the hospital. You're going you're gonna to get some contamination on your clothing. So I, I think this paper, though, to get back to the subject, I'm, I'm uh, drifting off here, but that's the way I am. Uh, the, this, the paper was a, a, a good weapon in your arsenal to argue with your, um, your staff about whether skull caps are okay. The problem, though, is a lot of these uh, mandates for bouffant caps are coming from states health departments and things and it's not easy to argue with those kinds of bureaucrats because you don't even know who they are for one thing so you know i don't know how you necessarily uh, can utilize this paper in the best way to prove your point but certainly locally you can have a meeting and in a very nice way present the, the information and hopefully uh, somebody will say you know you're right 
Um, it's not necessary to wear a bouffant cap. And by the way, I forgot to mention the AORN is very disingenuous about this. They say, we don't say you have to wear a bouffant cap. All we say is you have to cover up all your hair. Well, you know, a skull cap won't do it. And there, other than a hood, I can't think of anything else. Uh, by the way, speaking of hoods, another very uncomfortable headwear. Uh, either of those two things can cover up all your hair. But uh, that, so, so you don't say that you have to wear a hood or a bouffant. You're just saying it has to cover up all your hair. Well, that that is, you know, they're, they're, they're picking. Uh, it's a semantic argument. You know, it's about the words. But the fact is they want you to wear a bouffant cap or a hood. And that's that. So, uh, Dr. Scalpel, uh, is this myth busted? Well, um, I hate the hedge, but I would say it's on the, uh, it's trending busted. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> we like it. Trending busted for me, for sure. Great. Um, Another common myth that we deal with on almost a daily basis is the patient that says they have a penicillin allergy and uh, that they cannot receive cephalosporins, which is the most common uh, perioperative antibiotic used in surgical cases, which can be uh, problematic and end up in, um, in some studies have shown that poor uh, coverage because of um, poor perioperative coverage because of these penicillin allergies and not being able to give cephalosporins. So we're going to look at a few studies here to see what the literature says about patients with penicillin allergies and um, if they have cross-reactions with cephalosporins. Uh, Dr. Scalpel, do you have any initial thoughts on this? Well, I think there, there I, I'm pretty sure you'll probably mention this study, but the one from Mass General that just came out, I guess about two weeks ago, or three, showed that uh, when you use other than a cephalosporin, you get a significantly higher rate of infection because the antibiotics are not as good, or in the case of vancomycin, and I think we've all seen this, it takes an hour to run vancomycin in, and nobody has waited an hour. It just, you know, your anesthesiologist puts it up, and you wait a few minutes if you can, and then you attack. So, uh, you're not probably getting the vancomycin level that you you think you are. And uh, I have read the paper and some news uh, articles about it, and I am honestly convinced that it's true. And what they recommend is to, uh, if you if you have the uh, opportunity to do it in an elective situation, is to test these people to see if they're allergic, because I think that's a very good idea. And when I originally heard about this, I was sort of like, well, skeptical, because that's my name. But then when I read it, I was very impressed. I really think this is a huge problem, and it it could be fixed by simply making sure these people are not truly allergic, allergic to cephalosporins, which the vast majority, almost every one of them, they're not allergic. So I think this this paper... And I, I'm not one to change the way I do things based on one paper. And, of course, I'm retired, so this really doesn't matter to me in a personal way. But I honestly think this paper really makes you stop and think about not using clindamycin or vancomycin or, you know, whatever else you're substituting for, for uh, cephalosporins in, in the perioperative uh, prophylaxis. I think it's a, a really interesting paper. And... Perhaps it needs to be validated by another paper, but it certainly makes me think if I was still operating, I would definitely do this. I would try to get the elective patients tested early, make sure they're not really allergic, and then not, not give them a weaker or less effective drug. So there's another article that supports the a, a, a similar finding that there is a very limited cross-reaction. and It was an article that reviewed 27 separate articles and they found that the overall cross-reactivity rate between cephalosporins and penicillins in patients that are just reporting a penicillin allergy is about 1%. And those patients who actually had a penicillin allergy, and it's been confirmed, it's about 2.5%. And then the overall true incidence of an allergy to penicillin in patients that actually believe to have an allergy is only less than 10% overall. So the, really the cross-reactivity in patients with first and second, and second, first and second generation cephalosporins 
uh, is negligible in most of them. And the cross reactivity with between penicillins in all of the third and fourth generation cephalosporins is negligible. So just kind of su- further supporting the uh, the actual uh, the thought there. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I I think that um, this myth is busted for sure. And I think that the biggest hurdle is that we know that changing the way people do things takes years and years and years in medicine. It's going to be getting people to come on board with this. And, uh, it, you know, you're going to face resistance from anesthesiologists who are not going to want to give the uh, ANSEF because the patient has this allergy, which probably isn't even a real allergy. They vomited once when they took penicillin or some other thing that's clearly not an allergic reaction. And I think that's where you're going to have problems. It's it's getting people to change their their behavior. I I hope it can be done, but I'm I'm having done this for a while and had plenty of experiences. I mean, just look at the difficulty we had with another uh, myth, which is that people have to be NPO after midnight. And still, because uh, I've blogged about this too, and people still write back to me and say. Hey, no matter what the literature says, my anesthesiologist says an NPO after midnight or he's not putting them to sleep. So, you know, uh, it's hard to get people to change their behavior. And this is a very difficult situation because you have this history. Now that it's electronic record, too, it follows the patient everywhere. And then, have you ever tried to expunge an allergy <laughs> history from a medical record to this electronic? It's not easy. So you're going to have uh, pretty much daily or certainly weekly uh, confrontations about this. And I think that's really going to be where the problem is. But I, I, I am convinced that it's not even just harmless, you know, because I think people used to say, well, just don't give them the cephalosporin because we'll give them something else. And now we've got some evidence that says that's probably not a good idea. So uh, it, I, I see the, the difficulty is going to be not that the myth has been busted, but getting that converted into actual behavior and changing the way people do things. Um, what's been your experience with those sorts of things? I know you guys are pretty young and still in the business, but you must have encountered this where you've come up with some, you know, you, you know, something's been debunked and yet you can't convince the nurses or, you know, even your colleague, other surgeons or, you know, like you're attending because people just don't, they just don't want to change. They, they won't do it. Well, what, I think, your, what has been your experience with well, that? Well, a lot of times the uh, after these enough um, people have started mentioning this and the, the the research is out there, the hospitals will actually develop a policy on it, which we've which I found. So the MPO after midnight thing, a lot of hospitals develop policies on that. Uh, same for now with the surgical care and team steps. All these things have like almost algorithms to follow. So when you have a patient with a penicillin allergy, uh, cephalosporins can be given in certain hospitals where they actually have an algorithm. So. Well, that's good. Yeah, I, I found it hard um, personally, um, and specifically one of the myths we're going to discuss in another one is the uh, the lactated ringers discussion, and especially in patients with hyperkalemia. Recently had a debate um, about that, but one thing I found uh, helpful is um, for departments and things, if it, especially if it's a little bit outside of the surgical realm, whether it's uh, antibiotics issues or critical care issues, asking one of the experts from that department um, to come give a lecture to surgeons to, to educate them on sort of the new um, kind of what's been going on in that field because obviously we can't stay up to date with every field and surgery crosses boundaries in many ways. So I found that one way to help break down some of these barriers. Yes, that's a, that's an excellent way to do it. Um, I, I think having other people, especially nowadays, even the internists, you know, I don't know if you guys follow Kidney Boy on Twitter, but he's a nephrologist in Michigan, Detroit area, who... Um, is a very uh, he's a, a very social media savvy guy. He he's really made a reputation. I mean, I think if you ask people to name a, a, a you know a well known nephrologist, this guy's name would come up. And he he's not widely published. He's hardly ever written anything for that matter. But he's made a real name for himself because he makes a lot of sense. He has a very good blog about uh, the kidneys and nephrology and fluid and electrolytes. And my point is, these guys are even coming, you know, they, they actually believe that it's okay to give people 
who are in septic shock with metabolic acidosis, it's okay to give them Reuters lactate. And, and there's actually, I've always wondered about this, you know, personally, I guess we're, well, we just said over to this without, you know, and maybe you want to do this on a different time, but I just want to mention that the, you know, as you probably know, the, most of the potassium in the body, at least 3000 milliequivalents is in the cells, not in the circulation. And so if you have a, if you have a, uh, a serum potassium of 2.9, you're probably 200 milliequivalents total body uh, potassium down even though the difference in milliequivalents in the circulation or in the extracellular fluid is only six-tenths of a milliequivalent. So giving somebody 20 or 40 milliequivalents of potassium is not going to straighten that out. And the point is, there's only four milliequivalents in a liter, uh, four milliequivalents of potassium in a liter of Reuters lactate. There's no way you're going to kill somebody with potassium at four milliequivalents in a liter. It's just not going to happen. And I've always thought, like, what is, why are we using saline? We give all this chloride, and, it, you know, it makes people acidotic who are already acidotic from their disease. It's just crazy. So that's another one that's very hard to get people over. But I see the internists actually now believing it, the ones on Twitter anyway. And <laughs> if you get somebody to come and talk to you who actually understands that ringer's lactate is not harmful, in fact, it's uh, beneficial, that will really help change people's minds because I think they were the ones who've kind of planted the seeds of all this Ringer's lactate stuff in our minds and in the minds of others. And if they're coming around that it's okay to give it, then I think we have a chance to bust that myth too for, for good, hopefully. Absolutely. I think it is a uh, busted myth. Um, so one thing we want to dive into next is the, uh, fevers um, in patients, post-operative patients, and whether all these patients, A, need a complete fever workup within the first 24 hours, and then do they all need Tylenol and antibiotics um, if they do have a post-operative fever? Um, we have one study we're going to discuss, but Dr. Scalpel, what is your thought on the post-operative fever? I am completely and utterly opposed to, number one, working up people who are two or three days post-op because my feeling is there most of these fevers are metabolic, not uh, true uh, infections or inflammation. There's an there's an uh, a metabolic response to the trauma of surgery, and many times it's a fever. And so to culture everything and and do all that and start antibiotics is I think absolutely not indicated. And um, not only that, but Fever is good for you. It's it, it's a natural response to a problem, and to blunt the fever or try to make it go away is not only uh, difficult; it's also wrong. Fever is good for you, and you always hear these things about well, the patient's uncomfortable because they have a fever. Well, have you ever talked to patients who've been given uh, hypothermia blankets? You know, the water-cooled things. I don't even know if you guys still use those, but this was very popular. Or, you know, just trying with the physical means to lower the patient's temperature. That is way more uncomfortable than having a fever. So I am completely convinced that fevers, especially early post-op fevers, are harmless. They probably are good for you. They don't need to be treated. And it kind of also kind of dives into another uh, myth that atelectasis is the co most common cause of post-op fever. That is completely, that's been debunked by several studies. It is not the most common cause of post-op fever. In fact, I don't even know if it exists, to tell you the truth. So um, I think that we are way too, um, we're treating the fever as if it was some sort of disease when it's actually a salutary response of a patient to whatever it is that's causing the fever. You don't just get a fever for no reason. You have a reason to have it, and it fever helps the body repel whatever it is that's causing the fever. So why are we treating it? Stop, please. So even further than taking a look at it, we also uh, 
it evaluated over a thousand patients about six years ago at Madigan Army Medical Center. Uh, the lead author, Les Bronze, the senior author, Matt Martin. And interestingly out there, we found that about a quarter of patients developed an early postoperative fever, which I think is most in line with what is the experience for most surgeons out there. But when you went down the line towards who got a documented evaluation and what type of evaluation they got, including blood cultures and pan cultures, urine, blood, um, there's a very small amount of infections that were ever diagnosed. Any idea there, uh, Dr. Scalpo, about how many infections were clinically diagnosed in our over uh, 1,000 surgical procedures and 245 that had the early fever? How many of those actually had infections? Well, I'm going to say it probably... 10% or less. Yeah, absolutely. So less than 10% of those patients actually had something. A couple of patients came out with a pneumonia, 3%. A couple of patients had a UTI. But by and large, almost half of these could have only been treated with physical examination alone and probably didn't need all of these cultures or everything worked up. So we would agree physical with you. Physical examination. Wait a minute. What is physical examination? The we same do as. Anymore, do we? <laughs> Just kidding. You CT scan, right? Throw them in the scanner. Exactly. Total no body. Come the on. same. Yeah, absolutely. So we would agree with you on that one that uh, that probably just going and evaluate the patient and taking it from there is probably the most common thing. I, I think this is one of those surgical myths that's going to be really hard to break um, surgeons, even myself, out of. I recently was talking to my interns uh, about dealing with these and definitely discussed the standard workup of blood cultures, urine cultures, and uh, chest x-rays for all postoperative fever. So, because I, I, you know, at morning report the next day, when you report the fever to the staff and they ask kind of what happened, uh, I feel like a, a majority are still going to be on the boat of you guys didn't work it up you just did a physical exam i think it, it, it'll be a very tough myth to break at least in my establishment i couldn't agree more it's, it's going to be very difficult to break it because a lot of what we do in surgery is handed down from our mentors and then we hand it down to the next generation and um it's kind of burned into people's uh, consciousness and very hard to change i think it's probably not going to be easily changeable but and, and I think the problem of um, morning report or what, however, whatever you call it, you know, rounds in the morning after the night call and stuff, that also fosters things like lots of unnecessary lab tests because, you know, the chief resident wants it because he thinks the attending's going to ask, so you better order it. Um, I have to tell you a, a little anecdote, if you will. When I was an intern, we used to draw all the bloods because there was no IV team or phlebotomy team. And boy, did that ever make you want to stop and think about, did we really need this CBC and electrolytes today? <laughs> you know, because you were drawing all the blood. And, uh, and and I think there's two things about that. One is we got pretty good at starting IVs because we were drawing bloods every day. And I don't know how that works now because I don't think residents, uh, you know, really draw that many bloods. And But the problem is you you actually thought about or the, the, whether you really needed this lab work or not. And I think that's something that's been missing lately because it's so much easier to just nowadays order the test. Somebody else is going to do the work of drawing it. And then you'll have the result just in case someone asks, what is the, you know, the white count or whatever. And uh, it, it's, uh, it, it just adds a lot of costs. I know these tests don't cost much, but when you multiply it by hundreds and hundreds of patients in the hospital or thousands of, of patients, hundreds of thousands of patients over the year, you start to build up a little uh, it, you know, it's a big bill for uh, drawing all these bloods, and many of these tests are completely unnecessary. There have been actually a little flurry of uh, papers about this lately where people are, are beginning to really question seriously about daily bloods and why are you doing this, and we, we really need to stop doing that. It's also uncomfortable with the patients. You know, they get stuck for no good reason. So I think that the, the fever workup, involves generally you're going to draw blood culture and you're certainly going to send off the cbc and if you don't need the fever workup you don't need the blood tests it would be better for everybody if we stopped doing that but i understand the pressure when you're certainly when you're a resident trying to explain this this is why we didn't get it in the morning good luck with that <laughs> you know you're so going to be you're going to be uh, you, you're the safe way to go, and I, and I don't blame you because self-preservation is a very high motivating thing. Uh, you're going to go to err on the side of having too much information. 
and I understand that, but it's difficult to break because of that problem. It really is. So, Dr. Scalpel, is the myth of all patients need a fever workup and Tylenol um, for a post-operative fever, is this myth busted? In my mind, it is certainly busted. Certainly. Great. So let's move along to another one in the post-operative setting. Uh, the idea about using uh, stool softeners and specifically colase um, in this post-operative setting in the light of giving narcotics. What are your initial thoughts on that? Well, I'm fine. I'm glad that someone, I wish I, wish I had done this because for years I thought colase was really not an effective drug. I just never understood why everybody got colase. And finally, there's been some recent uh, research about it, and it truly doesn't do anything. I just, I'm so happy to see that, and I, I, I hope that we stop giving people colase because I don't know how much it costs. I'm, it's probably not that expensive, but still, it's just another thing that you know makes work for the nurses and the patients got to swallow it and all this. Please, it it it's got to go. Really, got to stop giving this. I uh, I don't know. What do you guys think about it? I I'm not the only. Uh, and I, I, I don't profess to know everything for certain. By the way, the older you get, the less you think you know everything. Uh, you're probably never as confident as when you're like the last few months of your chief resident year when you think you know everything. And then when you get out, like your first case doesn't go quite according to the way you think it should because that's the way they all went. Then you're like, maybe I don't know everything. And then the more you read about things and get along in your career and the further along you go, you realize there's a lot of stuff you don't know. And so, uh, welcome to the club. Uh, just, I'm warning you that that's going to happen. So just remember you heard it here first. <laughs> um, but anyway, Colace, I, I just don't see it. I really think it's a, it, it's just an abomination it really is. What do you guys think? So I will turn it on my residents or former residents and I will ask one of the three, Kevin's a chief resident. So you, uh, Kevin, how does Colace work? Uh, it is a uh, surfactant. It is like basically like soap is from what I understand. Um, and it is generally uh, presumed to be not very effective. And currently we, we actually, it's not really currently part of our bowel regimen at Madigan. And Wu, uh, where does it, how does it, how does it supposedly work in terms of surfactant? Kevin obviously Googled something very quick and came up with surfactant. But <laughs> how does it, uh, how does it work? And what, at what stage do you think it's most effective and why maybe doesn't it work as well as somebody in the post-operative setting or somebody who gets constipated? I would presume it doesn't work until far more distally, um, but that's a guess there. Well, uh, John, any thoughts about not necessarily in the GI tract, but how it works? No, I've, I thought it was, there was like a talk about it, maybe increase uh, the water content within the stool itself, yeah. but I don't, I don't sure exactly where that happens within the bowel. Yeah, so it's thought to kind of ha- work on that if you Google it or do one of these different ones. It's thought to basically, uh, at, like any surface tension type thing, looking at the oil-water interface and make the stool uh, itself more able to bring in water into it and kind of soften it up. So one of the issues is all the time is when you have formed stool that's already formed, it's not like it's punching holes in the stool and allowing water to get there. So it's probably better used off as stool is forming. And so if you have somebody who's like very constipated or comes in and has a large amount of obstipation and a large stool burden to give them a bunch of stool softeners with colase isn't the ideal thing to be able to do. You'd want to use other things that would increase your water content or make the stool irritable or anything like that. So what I would tell you is that if it's used properly, it's probably pretty effective, but it's not the best one. And you'll find many different papers out there that will compare and contrast stool softeners with just simple fiber in plenty of water in patients that have psyllium in plenty of water will do better in and of itself. So do you think it works well in patients who we are giving the, the, either the, the Miralax or the, or the, I guess the colase in this, in this question that to post operatively for narcotic use? So I think stool, I think oftentimes stool softeners will probably be used best in the setting of if you have an acute change. So somebody who's not normally on narcotics that maybe gets a little bit of narcotics and then you give it along with it at the time for very short periods. But it's probably not the ideal drug to have somebody, for example, who's constipated. 
that's not something you're going to be able to do or outside of that shorter burst setting there's much better drugs that you could be able to use and you go back to the fact that different people with bowel habits and we don't need to make this into a bowel habit talk we'll do one of those at a different time um, different people have different uh, bowel habits and so some people why does Miralax work like tremendously and give some person diarrhea and we have other people who can drink an entire gallon of it and they don't really get their bowels to go yet so uh, but when you think about it just think about it as it's probably better when stool is forming it's probably better when you have an acute change of bowel habits of which post-operative narcotics and somebody who's not a narcotic person for a very short period of time might be the ideal setting to the degree to which it absolutely works is variable often intrinsic on what the particular patient's bowel habits are like. And then again, in the long term, if you're thinking about colase for constipation, it is not the ideal drug. The next thing that we're going to come up on is bowel sounds following surgery. So this is something that, you know, you'll see the medical students running around with the stethoscope around their neck, and you might see an attending surgeon who hasn't seen a, a stethoscope in 20 years. So Dr. Scalpel, what are your thoughts about the bowel sounds in the postoperative setting? Well, I think everything that we've recently read about it is that it's useless. Um, and whether it even needs to be assessed is probably quite questionable. Um, I, I have to say, um, it's been a long uh, love affair with bowel sounds. It's hard to break up with bowel sounds, but I think maybe it's time. What do you guys think? Well, I think that uh, just this past year in June of 2017 in diseases of colon rectum, Tom Reed, good friend of mine at the Leahy Clinic, along with Phil Koshai at uh, Western Penn Hospital, finally took a look at this at a, at a actually really, really nice study, although it was fairly small, only 124 patients undergoing major abdominal surgery. But just as you said, uh, Dr. Scalpel, um, small study essentially no uh, association with flatus, bowel movements, or tolerance of oral intake after major abdominal surgery. No matter how you looked at this one, uh, the positive predictive value of bowel sounds in this setting was less than 25% in predicting almost pretty much anything. So um, I think these types of studies are, are really good because they kind of touch on what we're talking about here today is busting myths. So I would turn it back to my former residents. Wu, do you listen to bowel sounds and report that to your chief resident? I do. I, I have to admit, I still have that love affair. Okay. John? <laughs> I don't know where my stethoscope is, actually. Kevin hasn't seen a stethoscope in about five years, but that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. So, um, Kevin, what do you think? You're, when your residents give it to you in the morning, uh, when you're making your rounds, are you? is that something you're looking for, or what are your thoughts? I do love the med students' uh, reports on all four quadrants of bowel sounds. I really take a lot away from that, and I appreciate their uh, dedication to physical exam, but generally don't put much weight in it. You know, I think one of the most interesting things, and I'll, and I'll toss it back to you, Dr. Scalpel, is the fact that there's no question that you're going to, you know, especially talk to some old timers who will swear by this and talk about whether they're high pitched or low pitched or the frequency or if there really is a quadrant of a bowel sound. Um, I myself never listen to them. I don't really go for them. I don't think that even as somebody who has an ileus, if you start to hear bowel sounds, whether that will correlate with return of bowel function at the time of the date. They talk about the high pitch associated with any general form of ileus or partial bowel obstruction. But uh, any thoughts about you? Have, you? have you ever found a need for that or anything? Well, I, I must say when I was practicing, and I've actually been retired for five years, I listen to bowel sounds religiously. Like I said, I was, you know, brought up listening to bowel sounds. We always talked about them on rounds. And, um, I, I have to say in, in reviewing the recent stuff, like that one you said, and the one paper you mentioned and, and other things, and, uh, just uh, talking to people who are still practicing. Uh, I don't, I really think maybe it's time to say that's not really important. My, my only concern is that it's just another thing, though, that you don't touch the patient anymore, and that's a little bit bothersome. I, I just, I think that we are, doctors in general are being accused of, you know, being too technology oriented, and we're, we're sitting at the computer, looking at the screen, and, and talking to the patient without even making eye contact, and we're 
you know, we're, we CT scan everybody now with abdominal pain instead of examining them. And, and now we're not even going to put a stethoscope on their bellies. And we're, uh, you know, I, I, there's something about making contact with people, uh, you know, like you touch a patient on the shoulder to reassure them, you, you shake their hand, you do things to touch them and make contact, which means that you're sort of, you're presenting yourself as a human with who can relate to other people. And I think that the ritual of examining the patient is falling by the wayside and that isn't good, but the utility of listening to bowel sounds, I have to be honest, is just probably not there. Yeah, I think that's a good point of clarification. I don't think anybody for any reason would say, especially on a post-operative abdominal exam or somebody that you're concerned that needs to go to the hour, that you shouldn't do a physical examination, you shouldn't lay your hands on. I guess to clarify to all the listeners out there, we're kind of correlating the abdominal uh, listening uh, with the stethoscope with that. We don't wiggle their nose and predict bowel sounds either. So, um, so we're not saying that you're supposed to not touch your patients or examine or do a good belly exam. All we're talking about is a correlation here with whether they're high-pitched or low-pitched or whatever, thing like that with the return of bowel function in the postoperative setting. Great. Yes, I think that's good. I'm glad you clarified that. Thank you. Yeah, so Dr. Scalpel, we like to close out all these podcasts with our final five. Um, so the first question, actually, typically um, with surgeons that are still practicing in the operating room, we like to ask what sort of music you like to play in the OR. Uh, did you used <laughs> to play music in the OR or what do you listen to when you're, you know, typing on your computer and creating the next hit blog post? Uh, nothing on both counts. I never listened in the OR and I never listen to any music when I'm writing. I... Uh, understand the, the music, uh, the literature about music in the OR is extremely uh, conflicting. There are people who say that any kind of music distracts, and there are other people who say, well, it soothes everybody and that, you know, the staff is more calm and all this. And I love the ones that say, uh, some people say, well, we listen to music, but when it gets tense, we turn it down. Well, what the hell? <laughs> Why are you listening to it at all then? If, you know, maybe it wouldn't get tense if you weren't listening to music. So, I, I'm kind of against listening to music, but then I sort of sound like, you know, get off my lawn and, and all that. So <laughs> I, I understand it's uh, it's 2017 and music is here to stay. So uh, I, I have to admit sometimes as an anesthesiologist to say, uh, uh, do you mind if I listen? And, you know, in the, in the interest of harmony in the OR, I'd say, yeah, go ahead, play whatever you want. I don't care because I wasn't going to listen to it anyway. And I can tell you that people, on the occasions when I did have music going, I couldn't tell you one song that was played at the end of the case. I, you couldn't, I, I, the way I focused on what I was doing, I didn't even hear it. So, and I think that's the way we all should operate, by the way, is try to, uh, uh, you know, focus on your case and your conversation with the uh, staff from the, uh, at the table and asking for instruments and thinking ahead in the case and saying, hey, in 10 minutes, you know, I'm going to need this. So please get it now. And, you know, I just don't see how music contributes anything to that. But I understand the reality. And I know that if you are a music aficionado and you, you really want to listen to the OR, you can find many papers that will say, hey, you know, everything's better with music. And that's fine. I just personally, and I have nothing against music. I just don't like the idea of listening to it the OR. Um, old fashioned, yes. Uh, get off my lawn, yes. But <laughs> that's the way I feel. Uh Dr. Scalpel, do you have any hobbies, talents, or interests outside of the operating room? I certainly do. I play tennis five days a week. And we have a game here in the Northeast called Platform Tennis. I don't know if they have that out in Washington or even in Cleveland. I know it, it exists in Chicago and Pittsburgh and other places. It's sort of a miniature tennis court. It's played in a, on a, a, a platform with a, a wire fence around it where you, you can play the ball off the side. So it's kind of like a little bit like racquetball and squash, but it's it's kind of got rules of tennis. So um, I play as much as humanly possible. Um, and it, you, the thing about platform tennis is you can play it in the winter. Uh, you, you got snow in the court. You shovel the snow off. You turn the heaters on underneath the court. It melts the ice and you play. It's great. So, yes, I do that. I have grandchildren that I really uh, enjoy being around for an hour or so. And uh, <laughs> that was a joke. Uh, no. And, uh, you know, I, I have, uh, uh, I read, I, uh, I like, I've become a huge soccer fan. I, I have, a, I don't have time to do everything, honestly, that I want to do in the day, um, uh, because I have so many things I want to do, 
So yes, I have lots of interests, um, and I also uh, try to read medical literature still and keep up. And I do obviously. I'm on Twitter a lot, and uh, try to blog when I can. And yeah, I've got a lot going on. Okay, for our listeners out there, our recap here. We know the skeptical scalpel is in the Northeast, and he published a paper on CT scans and appendicitis in the early 2000s. So, get to work. Okay, uh, number three. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what would you be doing if you were not in medicine? Uh, I would be a uh, comedian. I actually have a, a daughter who's 26 years old, and she is a stand-up comedian. She has not made the grade to uh, being well-known, but she is uh, actually a uh, working comedian who's getting paid for her efforts. So uh, I believe that uh, it's a little known fact, but uh, when I was uh, just out of my residency, I uh, was a stand-up comedian in New York for a couple of years trying to make the grade, but it was a little bit incompatible with being a surgeon, you know, staying up till two in the morning to try to do comedy and then having a case at seven, seven thirty. Uh, not, not didn't work too well, so I had to give it up. But that's what I'd be doing if I could. I would do that. I, I will say my daughter is way funnier than I ever was, but uh, it it makes me sort of pine for the, the days when I possibly could have made that career change, but it, it didn't happen. So yes, that's what I would do. I, I would, I could do it now, I suppose, because I have nothing stopping me. But I, I don't see too many comedians my age starting. Um, it's something you have to immerse yourself in, kind of like being a surgery resident, to be honest with you. She's putting in tremendous amounts of time on this, and she is completely uh, obsessed and writes material all the time. And uh, it's just, you know, she, she goes to, she would perform in front of uh, three guys on the street corner if they, if they asked her. So she gets experience all the time. So I'm very proud of her, and I'm happy that she's carrying on the comedian tradition that I unfortunately could not uh, pull off. But that's what I do. Well, that's definitely a first one behind the knife. So <laughs> that's great though. Uh, is there a favorite trip or vacation that you've taken recently? Yes, I have, I have a daughter who lives in Australia and uh, we've been there twice and we just, uh, we went there back in February and March or late February, early March. And we saw new, uh, three days in New Zealand was fantastic. It's a beautiful country, well worth seeing if you ever are anywhere near there. And Australia is also a great place. The people are wonderful. The uh, the scenery is great. It's, it's so different than the U.S. in many ways. Uh, the climate's great. Um, very nice place. I really enjoy that. And um, the other place I like is Cabo, which you guys on the West Coast uh, have an advantage because it takes me a uh, six or seven hours to get to Cabo from here, but, uh, from the West coast, it's not a big deal. So I don't know why everybody isn't spending more time down there, but it's, that's a lovely place. The weather's great. Um, I've never been a place where it just never rains. It, it, you know, doesn't rain there if you go the right months, that is. So yes, that's another vacation spot. That's really nice. Awesome. Last question to close out a fun episode. If you could go back in time and see yourself on the first day of internship, what advice would you give yourself? (laughs) <laughs> oh, boy. Well, luckily, someone gave me this advice, and I would certainly pass it along, and I have done so. I actually have a post from six or seven years ago when I first started saying tips for new interns, and my number one tip would be pay attention to the nurses because I, when I was an intern, I started out on, neuro, on the neurosurgery service, and I had no clue as to what the hell was going on because, you know, I mean, I, I probably had a week of neurosurgery in school or, you know, med school. And I was taking care of neurosurgery patients who have a little different problems than general surgery patients. And the nurses somehow got me through this because, honestly, they didn't really need me. All they needed me to do was sign the orders. <laughs> they would say, well, here's what we usually do for this. I'm writing down as fast as I can, you know. And I think that is really the strongest advice. And that is don't go there thinking you know it all because you just graduated from medical school. And I think many people realize that. But you, the nurses can be so helpful if you let them and if you, if you respect them as individuals and, you know, just as peers, literally peers. And, and the, the nurses that I worked with were so good that they, they just could tell you just about anything. And the other one that I say, which is about the nurses, is when a nurse calls you and says, 
Mr. So-and-so doesn't look good. Get up, go there, and look at the patient because something bad is probably going on. And that is, of course, if it's a, a nurse you know and, and, and you know, can, you know they're not going to call you for nonsense. When they tell you somebody doesn't look good, you better go. So that's my, my sign-off to you guys who are listening. That's take that home and remember, don't just say, well, give them, you know, give them some Valium or give them some whatever your favorite thing is. This patient needs to be looked at. If it's a nurse that you know doesn't call you for silly stuff, you've got to go. And even if it's a nurse you don't know, because how do you know for sure if you don't know the nurse that she's not right, you got to go and see the patient. Absolutely. Well, that is great advice. And uh, Dr. Scalpel, we can't thank you enough for joining us behind the knife and helping us uh, bust uh, some of these myths. Um, I think this is a very uh, good topic to discuss and help us reevaluate our practices and uh, hopefully be continue to be evidence-based. So thank you for helping us evaluate these. Well, it was a pleasure uh, sort of meeting you guys uh, long distance. And I wish you luck with this. It's a nice idea. And I think uh, from what I can gather, lots of people listen. And I hope it continues. So keep up the good work. Definitely. Well, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Until next time, dominate the day.